We're going through a series called Jesus Calling, and really, we have a very ambitious goal over the next uh, few months. We're trying to go through the whole entire Bible. Now, obviously, that's pretty close to impossible. So what we decided to do is we decided to take major themes or characters in the Bible to create pegs, which you can kind of understand the, the, the mind map, all right? Mind mapping is a huge thing. I don't know if you guys are, do you guys have you done mind mapping before? Anybody? Okay, a few of us, right? So it's, we're trying to create a mind map, all right, of kind of how to understand the, the big picture of Scripture. A lot of times people don't um, they disregard Scripture, they disregard the Bible, they disregard the Christian faith, because either they've opened up the Bible before and they thought it was very confusing and very contradictory, or because like, they just don't understand the, the, the context in which some of these stories come out of. Right? Now, I'm not saying that if you understood the Bible you know, front to cover, uh, front to back, that you would you know, have greater faith or would believe in God. What I am saying is that there are plenty of people that have took that took a couple of pages out of the Bible and read it completely out of context and then threw out the baby with the bathwater, right? So what we're trying to do is equip our church and then also those of you guys who are journeying along the, uh, in faith uh, to at least have a broader perspective of what the Bible is trying to say and to see that in every page of the Bible that there's actually this person that's calling from the pages of the book. That's what we've called it, Jesus Calling, because we believe that every page of, in, in the Bible is in some way a pointer or about Jesus Christ himself. So, and what we're praying is that God will give you a breakthrough over the next couple of uh, months to, to weeks to months, that there be a breakthrough that would happen in your life, that as you hear the voice of God, as you trust his voice, that you would move out in obedience and that would lead to a breakthrough. And then one of the greatest uh, hindrances to a breakthrough is being reluctant or being hesitant or feeling insecure about a situation. A reluctant person is often somebody who God has given something, a, a truth or a task, but for whatever reason, they're hesitant to step up, all right? You're asked to do something. You're asked to be a part of something. Uh, it, may be, it may be ministry-related. It may not be something in the workplace, but you're hesitant to step up because you're insecure about your skill set, insecure about, like, your abilities, right? This can happen in church, business. This can happen in the home. Most of us who are young dads, I am in that boat with you. I get nervous about doing more with my kids because I'm afraid of failure, right? And so there's this constant hesitation, insecurity as a new parent. Right? Moses... Moses is the classic case of a reluctant, insecure person. Classic case, right? You'd be glad to know that the Bible is filled with them, right? And that if you ever felt this way, that you're not alone. That some of the greatest men that we talk about from the Bible, right, some of these epic stories, they were reluctant people. But Moses himself was actually the classic case of somebody who was reluctant. And again, like I said, I, I put myself in this category. Like, I'm not this morning, like, preaching a sermon that I'm really, like, I'm, like, I'm, I, I am much more natural, uh, much more self-aware than, than most people are. So with self-awareness can be great things, but also it could be natural insecurity. And one of the times that reminded me most of my insecurity was I was on staff at a church uh, a few years ago. It was a larger church, and so they were going through some changes, and one of the changes that they were proposing was they were going to start a new campus, and so, um, and so uh, the, the leader of the pastor, uh, the leader of the church at the time, he was asking me if I wanted to potentially lead that campus, and so I had a dream uh, one, one night that I was in charge of the campus, and the campus was going to launch, and uh, it, there, it was an auditorium filled with like 500, 600 people, and I was supposed to preach that morning, right, and so it was like game time, like it was like, you know, 1030, 
And then I realized that, oh, I'm supposed to give the message, but I didn't have a sermon prepared. I didn't have a message prepared. And so I'm like, I'm nervous. Like I'm, I'm visibly like in my dream, like I'm, I'm you know, it's one of those dreams where it's kind of like, you know, you, you feel like you're, you know, you go to school naked or without your shirt on and you just feel so <laughs> exposed, right? And so I'm like in the back and I'm peeking out. I'm seeing this crowd, you know, this auditorium filled with people and I have no clue what to do. So I do what every sane human being would do. I went to the backstage, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. So in my sleep, I fell asleep, all right? So in my dream, I fell asleep. And so then when I woke up from my sleep, I looked around and I tried to confirm people. say, how did it go? Did I end up preaching? <laughs> and nobody could confirm that I actually had preached this sermon. Uh, and so I was terrified. Right? I remember the moment that I woke up. Like I woke up and I remember that moment. And I said to myself, oh, I am not qualified for this. Like, I am not qualified for this. Like, don't you hate that feeling? You ever have that before? I hate it. ah, Man, I don't have the skill set to do this. I don't have the personality. I don't have, you know, I am just not good enough, right? I'm not good enough. So here's the comforting news. The comforting news is that history is chalk-filled with people who felt this way. But they still move the ball forward, and God still accomplished great things through them. I want us to be reminded this morning that God still uses insecure people. He did it with Moses. He'll do it with us. As a matter of fact, every person in the Old Testament, everybody, everyone in the Old Testament, the first half of the scriptures, and their corresponding failures and their corresponding faults, along with their successes and, and strengths, but everyone and their faults and their failures, they actually point to someone who's coming. They actually point to a better person, right? So Moses points to a better Moses that's coming. Adam points to a better Adam that's coming. Abraham's pointing to a better Abraham that's coming. David is pointing to a better David that's coming. Their faults and their failures are actually uh, uh, reminders that a better version of these prophets or these biblical characters are coming. And so we believe that all of the Bible is about Jesus, that Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Abraham. He is the better Moses, the better Noah, the better. And so we're going through some of these characters in the Bible. And so something to keep in mind as we're rolling through the series is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. So the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And what I mean by that is that the Old Testament is actually concealing some things that are revealed in the New Testament. Right, the picture comes together when you see Jesus come on the scene. And not just Jesus, but the birth of the church. Right? And so the Old Testament is the, the backdrop that's creating this environment for uh, the introduction of Jesus and then through Jesus, the church himself. Right? So let me give us the big picture because we are very ambitious in this series. So we're trying to give you again an overview. And uh, uh, before we jump into the story of Moses in, ex- in the Exodus, let's step back and let's recap real quick how we got to this point in the Bible. All right? So we have, um, let me give you three, uh, kind of three uh, pegs. And under each peg, I'm going to give you uh, a character. The first peg is the plan. If you're taking notes, you can write the plan. And underneath the plan, you have two guys, two characters that I think are very important for you to understand. You have Adam, who is, is, you know, everybody who knows anything about, like, the Bible, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard of Adam or Eve, right? And so Adam is the beginning of all things. God starts with Adam, right? And so, um, again, do you have to believe in a literal Adam? These are conversations that we can have 
right? We have theologians all throughout the ages that believed in little Adam. They believed in, you know, old earth, young earth theory. We can have all these discussions. The point is this, that God created man to be an image of himself, to, to be able to reflect himself all throughout the earth. And so, in a sense, God wanted sons to look like himself, to rule the earth in justice and in righteousness, right? Everything that we've dreamed for in humanity, right? God had that plan in Adam, right? And so it didn't happen that way, right? So you go on and, you know, you know the, you know the story. They, Mike talked about last week. They uh, fell. They made a decision to unplug from God as a source, and they plugged into themselves. So God restarts again, right? God restarts again. And, you're, you know, if you're like me, like, why, why did God have to destroy the earth? Because he did that with Noah. You say, why, well, God, why would you destroy the earth? I don't think we quite understand what it looked like for God to remove his hand from humanity and let humanity run amok. Like, I, I don't think we understand that. You can kind of see it with some of the craziness that's happening, right? Something, what happened in Fallujah, in Istanbul, in Orlando a couple of weeks ago, right? That, imagine when God just took his hand of, of grace away from humanity, and he just let humanity go run amok, right? In a sense, I feel like maybe that's what happened, and so... Um, he started again. He started with Noah, all right? So uh, you, you don't see Noah. Uh, he's that speck right there. But uh, so God started again with Noah, right? So the plan, God wanted to create relationships with people so they would reflect him on the earth. He started with Adam and Noah. And then came the promise, all right? So you go Adam, Noah. And then from there, you want to go to Abraham. And Mike talked a little bit about Abraham last week. So through Abraham, Abraham was not like a Christian, all right? There is no sense of Christianity during Abraham's time. This is the patriarch's time. As a matter of fact, the only other contemporary of Abraham really uh, in the Bible is Job, all right? And if you read the book of Job, there's no mention of like Yahweh necessarily, right? There's no sense of like monotheistic religion that we understand it. But Abraham, Job, these guys, they, they were polytheists. They worshiped a plethora of gods. And then God started with Abraham, and God revealed himself to Abraham. And he said to Abraham that I want to create two things, or three things out of you. Uh, a people that has land that will bless the world. Simple. So I'm going to implement my promise that there's going to be a people that will have land that will bless the world, right? And so it was actually through Abraham. He didn't get to see the promise fulfilled. He had to wait 400 years before Moses came, right? We'll come back to that. But Abraham's like, okay, great. Uh, let's see it happen. God says, no, but it's not going to happen with you, right? So you actually see a couple of generations. So let's go to the next slide. You get, and this is all from the Bible Project, right? Now, I study the Bible much more deeper than the Bible Project, a cartoon series. But if you don't want to go to seminary like me, you can go to the Bible Project and get a cursory understanding of all this stuff. So it went from Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, who was the seed, Abraham's first actual uh, promised son um, after Ishmael, and then eventually came to Jacob. And Jacob was actually the person who was named Israel, all right? And so you have Abraham, who received the promise. Isaac was the son that, uh, the, that God was going to create a nation from. And Jacob actually had all the babies. So Jacob had 12 sons, right? And so by the time, by the time you get to Jacob, there's a famine in the land. And they have about 70 people in their family, right? This is the end of the book of Genesis. And they go to Egypt because where they're living, there's no food. And so only in Egypt was there food. As a matter of fact, it says that Joseph was, you know, one of the sons. He was the one who engineered, um, you know, the food storage. Uh, you know, so if you're, if you're studying food in, in university, you'd be glad to know that so was Joseph. He, he, he had food storage, and he engineered that in Egypt so that other countries were able to migrate to Egypt. So they went to Egypt, 70 people, all right? 
So we're now setting the backdrop for the introduction to Moses. And then while they were in Egypt, they multiplied and they uh, became uh, prosperous. And so they went from about uh, uh, 70 people in over 400 years. And this is not like spectacular growth. I mean, if you, if you map the growth of the human population right now, this is on par to about 600,000 men, all right? And so uh, it's not a chauvinist thing, but, you know, they, they recorded men uh, as a good marker as the, the population and the growth. So people think at least a million people, right, in over 400 years. So at this point, um, imagine, you know, again, uh, you don't have to imagine Brexit, right? Brexit, right? Everything, right? So, um, you know, uh, is it about the economy? Maybe. Is it about, you know, uh, you know uh, keeping tradition? And if you're British in here, I don't want to offend anybody in here. Um, but at the end of the day, in Egypt, it was about all these foreigners coming in, potentially causing, you know, uh, ruin to the people, right? And so the, the pharaoh uh, at the time, uh, who some scholars think is Pharaoh Ramsey, right? Uh, they, uh, he, they were paranoid that this group of a million people, if there were ever an uprising, that they could actually uh, be a part of foreign uh, invasion and would take, you know, take down Egypt, which was, at the time, the superpower of the day, right? If you study anything about ancient civilization, you know that Egypt was one of the powers uh, for a long time to reckon with. And so in their paranoia, they took this ethnic class that was helping them flourish, and they pushed them down to a slave class, right? And so this is the backdrop for Moses. Moses was born into this, right? So what I, what I wanted to do there was map you from like um, Adam all the way to Moses, and this is, you know, Moses carrying Papyrus? I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then uh, we'll eventually get to David uh, in the next couple of weeks. But by the time you get to David, all right, these are the main characters. Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, and David. These are the main characters of the Old Testament that create the framework for everything in the Old Testament. So you won't read a page on Scripture in the Old Testament that doesn't have some kind of link back to one of these five characters. All right. And so, at this point, um, they are about a million people. And let me show you a map of Egypt. Um, so I don't know if you can tell. I can tell already that I'm not going to finish the sermon. But <laughs> so Egypt, right here. This is ancient Egypt back in the 15th uh, century, way before the old uh, Jesus' time. So Egypt is the superpower. And so um, up in the right-hand corner, you have the Assyrians that are starting to emerge as a superpower as well. All right, and so they'll emerge uh, several hundred years later, but they're starting to emerge. And so this is the known world, right? At this point, there is no uh, Canada, there is no America, you know, I, there's no Australia, you know, I mean, uh, so this is the known world at the time. Egypt is a superpower. There are emerging superpowers that are, uh, are from the north and from the east, okay? And so the desert is pretty inhabited. People were smarter back then. They didn't inhabit the desert. Um, and so there's this tiny strip of land, that connected Egypt and the superpower and the emerging powers in the north, all right? So superpower in the south, superpower in the north. There's a tiny, you see the strip of land, right? Uh, this is Palestine, modern-day Palestine. And so it's right there, right there that, that God says to Moses, and I'm going to now call you and the Israelites that have been oppressed as slaves in Egypt for so many years. I'm going to call you out, and I'm going to place you smack dab right in the middle of all the chaos, right? And so because that's a very highly contested land, because it connects the powers to the south 
to access to the north. Right? And so it's in that region that God says, and that's where you're going to go. Right? So it's no wonder that Moses is nervous. It's no wonder, right? Because he's got to lead a people of about a million into this land that is highly, highly contested. Now, here, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with the Bible to, to think that like this is important. We all know still 3,000 years later, all right, 3,500 years later, that this piece of land is still highly contested. You cannot go to any major news network and, never, and not see what's going on in the Gaza Strip. I mean, this, this land is still highly contested, right? Up until 1947, it was wide open for, you know, yeah, again, I mean, the whole Palestinian-Israeli um, conflict. But this piece of land was highly contested 3,500 years still later, right? And so there was something about this uh, location that God was saying to Israel, okay, you started out with one person, Abraham. You went to 70 people. Now you're just a family. You went to Egypt. You developed into an entire nation, right? You're now a, you're a people group. You don't have a king. You don't have any political figures, but what, I'm going to give that to you, but I'm also going to give you land, and it's going to be smack dab in the middle so that, so that you can be a light to the rest of the world, right? So God strategically wanted to put Israel in that middle place because that was the lampstand. Does that make sense? He was taking them out of Egypt as a motif that I'm taking you out of slavery into freedom, out of, um, out of bondage into purpose, right? And that was the motif that God created for the people of Israel, that they, they kept, they latched onto that motif for thousands of years. We were in slavery. God saved us and gave us freedom, right? And so that's the backdrop that Moses is in. Now, Moses, if you know anything about his life, he was actually saved from genocide because as the Pharaoh was discovering that the Israelites were growing, he started killing off all the babies, especially the, the, the young boys. And so he was saved um, by Pharaoh's daughter and so was given the name Moses, which means to be drawn out, out of the water because he was, he was sent down a river and... Uh, uh, and then Pharaoh's daughter discovered him. And so Moses actually grew up an Egyptian. Right? He was not a God-fearer. He had no context for, uh, uh, you know, oh, he had context for God in that he understood that he was Jewish, growing up Egyptian. He understood that the Jews were enslaved. But he had no, con- there was no, what we would consider a personal relationship with God between Moses, right? As a matter of fact, by the time, which is what we read this morning, by the time you get to Moses meeting God and having some kind of personal revelation of who God is as the God of the universe, Moses is 80 years old. Moses is 80 years old. The first time he has a, what I call a burning bush moment with God, it was an encounter with a personal God. It was the, it was the idea that God was revealing himself in a personal way. And if you uh, are, you know, if you've ever struggled with, you know, God, you know, show yourself to me, you know, I want to know more of you. Here's the thing. You know, and I think most of us to some level, to some extent, we've prayed a prayer like that. Moses discovered that the more personal you get with God, it's harder to say no to him. It's easy when God is this abstract concept. It's easy when God is something that everybody else is learning about. But the moment you know that God is personal and the moment that you know God's name, it's hard, in a sense, to say no to him. And our story today is actually Moses in that environment of tension. 
You see, Moses is, uh, now he left Egypt because he actually murdered an Egyptian, and Pharaoh is after him. And so he leaves Egypt, and he goes into the land of Midian, and he marries somebody, and he is, you know, kids, he has a son named Gershon, and he's a shepherd. He's no longer, uh, you know, royalty in, uh, in Pharaoh's house. He's a shepherd. And so he's, you know, living this, like, you know, this blue-collar life. And so, uh, you know, if you've ever watched, uh, uh, what's the new movie with uh, uh, Australian guy? Not Russell Crowe, but, oh, Exodus, right? Yeah. It's Exodus. Oh, yeah, right. Exodus. Great name for that movie. Uh, right. I think he's following a, a sheep that went up to, like, who knows what's the reason why, right? But he sees this burning bush. And, and, and it's in this burning bush, it says that, but it was not consumed, right? That he begins having this conversation with God. Now, you got to imagine, it's not, that, it's, it's not as casual as you and I think, right? I mean, it's probably pretty epic and pretty dramatic. Moses does, is not a person of faith at this point, right? Uh, Moses is, this is not like he had, you know, been doing daily devotions and this was a spectacular devotion. It wasn't anything like that. He was starting a regular day as a shepherd, right? He thought his royalty days were behind him. He was 80 stinking years old. He thought the best days were behind him. And so he is playing, he's doing his blue-collar job, doing his, right, you know, he chases these sheep, and the bush happens, and God begins to speak to him, right? And so it's in the story that God actually introduces himself to Moses. He's actually given Moses more historical context for why he's getting ready to send out Moses, Right? And so he's saying, you know, these people that are in bondage and slavery, I am their God. I was God of over age, uh, Abraham. I was God over Isaac, over Jacob, the family of 70 that is now a million that your, you know, that your, you know, adopted father-in-law is persecuting and killing. Those are my people. And so he's given Moses this download, right? And so Moses naturally is a little bit intimidated and he's a little bit skeptical, right? As a matter of fact, if you read, I think it's at verse, um, we didn't get to this verse, but I think it's in verse uh, 6. Moses says, it says that Moses was afraid of God. Moses was afraid of God. And so this whole entire like, scene of God speaking to him causes fear in Moses' heart. I've spoken to enough people to know that when, you know, and I became a, a, a follower of Jesus when I was, uh, uh, when I was younger. I uh, went through a lot of struggles, 16, 21, at age 22, I almost left the faith. But I know for a lot of you guys who have a different trajectory and you became Christians as an adult, it, it was very scary for you, right? For those of you guys who came to faith in Christ as an adult. Because what you realized was this, that at that time, if God was real, then that meant that some things that were happening in your life had to be undone, right? That there were some patterns in your life, or there were some history, or some relationships, or some habits, or something in your life that were going to have to be undone. So it caused fear in your life, and I understand that. That's completely acceptable, as a matter of fact, countless people, as Lynn and I have been doing ministry over the years, have gotten to this point when they realize that it's time to make my faith public, and either that's either by telling people that you're a Christian or, you know, what we believe is, is through baptism. It's not magical. It doesn't save you. But when you go forth and say to the public that, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe and I stand on this, that there's some fear in your heart, right? Moses understood this, that I'm afraid to go you know, a certain step, because it may mean that here, that I'm not good enough. It may mean that, like, I can't give up those things. It may mean that, like, you know, uh, I may get, you know, my, my family may, like, uh, think, you know, that I'm, I'm ignorant for believing this stuff, right? 
And so it's a myriad of reasons. And so Moses has a similar hesitation when he comes face to face with the person of God. His, his, re, his response is fear. But it's amazing what God does. God actually says to him, I will be with you. I, I'm with you. Don't, don't be afraid, right? Um, as you read Moses' response, he, it sounds like he's throwing excuse after excuse out there, right? First, it starts with fear. And God actually begins to slowly re- reveal himself to, to Moses to the point where Moses says, well, if I go to these people, then they're going to ask me, what's the name of your God, right? And to you and I, that, that really doesn't mean a whole lot because, like, we, we've grown up in a Western, somewhat Judeo-Christian society. We, we understand that God is like the God of the Bible, at least, or Allah, or, you know, Krishna, or something like that. So this was a significant question that Moses was asking because Moses was saying, which one are you? Because the Egyptian gods are, are, you know, Wikipedia ancient gods. And you'll see like, there were like 35 different gods that were worshipped. So Moses is saying, which one are you? And so God reveals himself as, I am who I am. I am who I am. Tell them that I am who I am sent you. And the interesting thing about this, the phrase, I am who I am, is, in a sense, if you study it in the, the original Hebrew, it's actually a version of the, of the name Yahweh, right? Which is the Jewish name for, for the creator God, right? And so it was this idea that God is saying, I, I am everything. I, I am the ultimate being. I am the creator. I am everything that you can stake your life and the creation in. That is the, I am that God that is going to deliver them. And what's interesting about this passage is if you fast forward, remember we said earlier that the New Testament is actually the Old Testament revealed. If you fast forward to John 58, which we're not going to read through, but Jesus is actually being debated against by some religious people. And they say, you know, they say, he says that, you know, before time, even with Abraham, that I am, I was, right? I existed. And so people wanted to stone him. It's because Jesus was referencing this part of Scripture where he's saying that I am equal to God, the creator God, the Father. And that's why the religious people in John 58 wanted to stone him. And so uh, God reveals himself to Moses in this way. And this is when Moses really puts on the brakes, right? This is when Moses really gets hesitant and all of his insecurity comes out. And he starts saying, well, God, you know, I mean, if I go there, they're not going to listen to me. And he, he pulls out this one. He says, but if I go there, like, I'm not skilled in speech. Like, I actually have a stutter or a slur. People think, right, theologians think that he dealt with a, some kind of, like, a stutter or that kept him from being able to, to talk and to speak um, publicly. And so he's, like, he's pulling out all the stops, and he's trying to, like, you know, get, get God to, to convince God to not call him to do this thing, right? And, you know, I don't know if you can relate to that, um, but as someone who, you know, often has to stand up in front of people, that bookmark just won't stay. (laughs) Uh, As somebody who has to stand up and talk in front of people, you know, with regularity, that, you know, it's not an easy task. But when you have a stutter, it's, I mean, it's even more difficult, all right? And if you've known people who stutter with, uh, with public speaking, it's very difficult. So Moses had a legitimate reason for not doing this gig. But at the end of the day, it wasn't about skill, it was about calling. That you, you and I, we were probably not skilled. You and I are probably not skilled for the very things that God's called us to do. That there isn't enough strength or skill or wisdom in you 
to do the very things that God's calling you to do. But something in the Christian life that you have to remember is that you have to be grounded by your calling and not by your gifting. Ground yourself in your call, not in your gifting, right? Sometimes people flake out because they're nervous that if they do something, like they're going to bomb, right? All right. Uh, I won't take a survey, but if that's ever been you, where you flaked out on something because you're afraid you're going to bomb, remember this, that God, it's not about the gifting, right? If God is calling you to something, into a position, into a leadership, into a task, into trusting him, it's not about how good you are. It's about what God wants to do through you, right? Um, I wrote down here, I don't think it's up here, but irrational and perpetual insecurity is an idol because it's making something else besides God our sense of security. Why is insecurity an idol? Because we think by not failing, we're more secure. Not that God is more secure, but by not failing, we feel more secure, right? Or by not embarrassing ourselves, we feel more secure. Or by not exposing ourselves, we feel more secure, all right. And so I've got two statements up here uh, that, you know, I often tell myself this uh, quite a bit. I am not blank enough. All right, if I were to fill in the blank here, I would say, I am not smart enough. Or I am not strategic enough, all right. The Harvard guy raises his hand when he says, I am not smart enough. Come on, Harvard. Uh, okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, I am not like, you know, uh, good-looking enough, right? So those of us who are seeking relationships, right? Uh, I am, so fill in the blank, right? I already confessed all of my insecurities to you. Uh, I am not a good enough leader. I am not good at delegating, right? And now, I'm, boy, I'm really getting into it now. Uh, <laughs> I am a control freak. I am not a great multitasker, right? And so I'm not administrative enough, right? These are the things that I'm constantly telling myself, all right? And then there's the flip side. I say this to myself, and I don't know what you say, but I say, I am so, um, uh, 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 I'm so, um, uh, uh, you know, tired all the time. I don't have enough energy for this, right? Or I am so dysfunctional. Like my background, my family, like there's no way, there's no way, right? All of these things begin to kind of arise inside of us, right? I talked to somebody who was asked to lead a, um, you know, a, uh, a project recently. And uh, they were saying, oh, I can't lead because that's not my personality. It's not who I am. And that may be true, right? Because so, some, some of the worst things that you can do is you be in a position where you're not gifted to do it and you kill yourself trying to do it, right? So I'm not advocating, you know, do stupid things. But there are moments when you know that God has told you to do something, and your response to that is, ah, I, I'm, I'm so busy, I'm so, or I'm so inadequate, right? And so these are things that we naturally tell ourselves. The worst thing that you can tell yourself, and this is what, as a Christian, that we often do, is that we say, I'm dysfunctional because I'm actually worse off now than I was before I was a believer. Because my insecurity doesn't surround the things that I've left behind. My insecurity surrounds the things that are still a part of my life today as a believer, that were a part of my life when before I was a believer. I still carry around the same baggage. I'm still struggling with the same things. Like, how could I put myself out there and make myself available if people find out that I'm still struggling with the thing that I've been struggling with for 20 stinking years, right? And so if you're insecure about anything, and if you're like me, that, that makes me insecure. Because I tell myself, man, I'm never, I'm never going to 
make it. I'm never going to do better. But, you know, God doesn't think about us in this way. Uh, the other day, my son Connor, he came into my, uh, while I was studying, <laughs> he came in with his iPod. He says, Dad, I'm a genius. I was like, okay, Connor, you say a lot of things. Uh, you don't have to qualif- qualify that statement. And he says, well, you know, I was taking this app for my IQ. <laughs> it was like a 10-minute test. Where did you go, Connor? All right, he's not here. Uh, and uh, he says, and I scored a 142, which, if you know anything, 142 is pretty, pretty high. <laughs> this is like, you know, genius level. He says, I'm a genius. And so he's, like, really proud. I'm saying, well, you know, Connor, you know, it's, it's, probably, it's not full-blown IQ test because full-blown IQ test has to be administered by, you know, qualified people and stuff like that. He's like, I know, Dad, but, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, this, this, this reconciles that I'm, I'm actually smart. It, it, you know, it confirms all my suspicions about myself, right? I was like, well, there's other things about you that it's confirmed to me. Like, maybe you're a bit prideful, but he gets that from his dad. And I came back to him later in the evening. I said, hey, Connor, can I tell you something? You don't need an app to know that you're smart. I tell you that all the time. Isn't what your father thinks about you more important than what these metrics and these scales tell you? And in his smart attitude, he says, yeah, I know that, but I just wanted you to know for myself. But it's important for you to know that what the father thinks about you is so much more important than what the metrics that you place around your life to mean, you know. Like, sometimes we feel like if I accomplish things more, then I am much more valuable or I'm much more um, uh, productive or, you know, I'm a, I'm a greater commodity for, you know, my company. But God is constantly saying, as he's saying this to Moses, that you don't have to be enough because in my eyes, I'm enough for the both of us, Right? And so uh, I wrote a couple of things down here as we um, uh, conclude. Um, uh, insecurity is not the same as humility. All right? uh, humility uh, is, is oftentimes thought as, you know, kind of debasing, defacing yourself. And it's not, it's, that's not humility. Insecurity uh, is an over-focused on yourself, and that's not humility. Humility isn't thinking of yourself more or thinking as, of yourself as less worthy. Humility is just not thinking of yourself as much, right? Insecurity is a strong, like, obsession with your, your weaknesses, and uh, they're not in the same. Uh, also, secondly, is God wants to work in, and he wants to work out your insecurity. Why did Moses feel insecure? Well, it's because of his past. And Moses had enough things about his life to make him an insecure person. God wanted to use a greater call to do, you know, to, to lead the exodus, God's people, into the promised land. And that wasn't too big for God to, in the process of that, work on a character flaw in Moses, and that was his insecurity. And that's the same thing for us. God has a huge task and a huge mission for us, but that doesn't supersede the fact that God, in the midst of it, he wants to work in your insecurity, but he also wants to work out of it. He wants to work it out of you. That as you begin to move forward and take steps of, uh, uh, of obedience, you'll find that where you're weak, God has stronger people come alongside. That's what he did for Moses. He called Aaron to come inside and says, you're not a great public speaker? Well, Aaron will be the public speaker for you, right? But when you don't take a step of obedience, when you don't take a, take a step of action, what you're allowing is you're allowing the insecurity to breed because you're not giving God an, a chance to work out your insecurities. You're, you're allowing that stuff to fester inside of you. 
And so with Moses, as God was working with Moses and he was leading the people, God was also sanctifying Moses, that Moses was becoming more and more, you know, uh, secure in his leadership. And you see that as the story progresses. So uh, I want to give us uh, a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves, right? Maybe you feel like, I'm not an insecure person. But here are some questions that you can ask yourself that really uh, took a lot of this from my own life, but also a lot from, you know, kind of um, different characters, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, obviously Moses, but different characters from the Bible. Here's six questions that you can ask yourself. First diagnosing question is, do I act bigger than I really am? All right, don't answer that. You know, your spouse or the person closest to you knows that, right? They know your public and your private life, right? And so they know that they don't match, right? You're like, in public life, you're like this huge, like, personality. In private life, you're always, like, insecure, right? Do you act bigger than, uh, do I act bigger than I really am? Uh, Second question is, am I easily offended? That could be a sign that um, we have some insecurity. Uh, uh, Thirdly is, am I regularly critical of others? Do I always find something, like, to criticize about other people? Uh, oftentimes, that just could mean that you're a very critical person. Maybe you're just a jerk, right? It doesn't mean that you're insecure. But it often does mean that there's insecurity there because you're constantly pointing out, and this fourth question adds this, um, uh, answers it, or uh, hints at this, do I see in others the bad qualities that I see in myself, right? And again, I keep, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not too harsh on our parents this morning, um, but sometimes we do this as parents, right? And your parents did this to you, right? The things that your parents criticize most about you, you probably said, well, Dad, you do it too, or, you know, Dad, you're, I'm just like you, Dad, right? Uh, but you begin to see other things and people exhibiting behaviors that you don't like, and you realize, wait, that's, that's, that's me too. Uh, fifth is, am I overworking, overachieving to prove myself to others or to myself, Right? And you just find yourself, you're, you're always pushing yourself. You're always working like, you know, twice the amount that you should because you feel like you have to prove yourself. And lastly, uh, is the opposite. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm slightly older than millennials. I'm not millennials, but, you know, I'll, I'll kind of lump myself in with millennials today. Uh, yeah. But uh, millennials have been thought of, you know, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying Brookings Institute put out an article and said this. Millennials have thought, been thought of as a generation where um, they underachieve. We underachieve. We avoid responsibility because we don't like the pressure of other people relying on us. And so I'm just going to purposely not be as responsible as I could be. Or I'm going to purposely not try to achieve more than I should because I don't like the pressure of people having to depend on me. Right? And that, in a sense, is also an indicator that there may be some security that we're working through. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 3 that reminds us that Jesus is the better Moses. Hebrews writes to this, that therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, uh, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, he's the apostle, the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, right? And what that means is that Jesus actually is, is higher above Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was building something that represented Jesus, Jesus' house. That's what the Hebrews writer is saying. And then verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And here's the key, and this is where I want to end us in prayer. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house, 
as a servant. Insecurity stems from a servant mentality. That you're serving a God, or you're serving other people, or you're serving a purpose or a vision. And there's nothing wrong with serving, but when your mentality is, I'm a slave, or I'm a servant, then you'll always feel that you're not enough. And it's bad when it's in a relationship, right? When you feel like you're the slave of the partner, or a slave of your you know, your siblings or some other, per- your friend, right? Your friend doesn't give out as much as you, right? Moses, there's a key, key idea here. Moses thought of his role as a servant, but Jesus's role was different. And the role that Jesus came to give us is the role that Jesus had. It says this, now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. When you make the switch from I'm a servant and a slave of God to I am a son and a daughter and a child of God, over time the insecurity dissipates. Because in the Christian faith, there is no performance-driven metrics. It's just dad saying, son, you're a genius. And you're like, I am a genius. I don't need an app to tell me that. Jesus was a son of God's house. That's how Jesus built the kingdom. That's how God is, that's how Jesus is accomplishing God's mission is by expanding the house of God. God is in the business of creating for himself sons and daughters, children of God, not servants or slaves. And so if there's any ounce in us that has an Egypt mentality where we're still enslaved in our Egypt, Through Christ Jesus, he transforms you from a slave in Egypt to a son or a daughter in the promised land. That is Jesus' promise. The best way to overcome insecurity is not to become better or more skilled, which I would advocate, you know, for the effectiveness of whatever call that you have, vocation. But that's not the key to your insecurity. The key to your insecurity is to realize that in Christ Jesus, The Father looks at you, and he approves of you, not because of what you do or how you can accomplish things, but because of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. He is turning you from a slave in Egypt to a son or a daughter in the promised land.